Church family, would you please recite the Apostles' Creed with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can call you Father. Open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things written in your word. Help me get out of the way so that what you once said gets said, no more, no less, for your glory and for our good. And the church said, Amen. In 1942, when the Japanese Imperial Army overran the Philippines, thousands of American, Philippine, and Allied troops were forced to surrender. After a 60-mile forced march in brutal heat called the Bataan Death March, thousands lost their lives, stragglers were put to death. Those who survived endured a brutal POW camp called Cabanatuan. Cabanatuan. A corporal by the name of Alfred Jolly remembers his three years there. He says, at first we tried to live like humans. We cared for each other while there was medicine. We took vitamin pills while they lasted. We tried to look our Sunday best, but things kept getting worse. And after a couple of years, we just keeping alive was tough. We lived on rice for breakfast, rice for lunch, rice and water for dinner. I lost 93 pounds. What made us hungrier was the way that they worked us. We pumped the water of our enemies. We brought their rations. We did their labor. And we didn't know what was going on in the outside world. And we began to give up hope. The enemy kept showing us their propaganda movies. We saw how they took the Philippines. We saw their strength. For all we knew, they were in California or Colorado. We worried if anyone would remember us at all. And then one day, we looked And we saw planes. We saw American planes. And you could just hear the hope in his voice when he said that. Now, their conditions had not changed. They were still POWs. But once they saw planes, everything changed. They knew that they were going to win. Their deliverance was near. Church family, Today, I want you to see planes. I want you to see soaring scriptures which speak of the final and complete deliverance of God's people in Christ. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 5, verses 22 to 29. John chapter 5, verses 22 to 29. Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the gospel of Christ. So, church family, these verses touch on that portion of the Apostles' Creed that we're going to learn about today. He shall come to judge the quick. And by the way, that word means living. It's from the old English. He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So the creed tells us the past, present, and future of salvation history. Concerning the past, we learn Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, raised, ascended. That's past. But then the present is he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's happening right now. Jesus is reigning in the heavenly realm while we are here in the earthly realm. The future is what we'll talk about today. He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, some of you may be thinking, Pastor, are you serious? I mean, we're in the middle of a national health crisis, and you're going to preach on Judgment Day? Really? I mean, the worship room is already empty. Do you want to keep it that way? Have you lost your mind? Well, all right, concerning the first question, yes, we are going to talk about Judgment Day today. That's our topic. Uh Uh-huh. Concerning the second question, no, I don't want to keep the worship room empty. And concerning the third question, have I lost my mind? Possibly. Possibly. But here's my goal. My goal is to persuade you that this is the most stress-relieving line of the Apostles' Creed. And I mean that. Listen to me. Listen to me. The trees in your backyard your dog, your goldfish, all of creation wants Christ to return. The rivers, the stream, the hills are pining for the Lord's arrival in judgment. I'm thinking of Psalm 96, verses 11 through 13. It's a companion psalm to our call to worship, Psalm 98. Listen to Psalm 96, 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So you see, All of creation is groaning for Christ's coming to judge the quick and the dead. And what I want to do is I want to dismantle and deconstruct our our superficial views of 
what judgment day is. And instead, I want us to rely on the Christian scriptures. I want to rely upon the Lord's own words. And when we do, we will see that Christ's coming comforts us, terrifies us, and then liberates us. That's where we're going today. The coming of Christ comforts us, terrifies us, and liberates us. First, the coming of Christ comforts us. Well, well, why do I say that? Well, let's define terms. Judge, what, is, what do we mean by that? What's the Bible mean by that? Well, the word judge in Scripture is a word that literally means to, to cut away or to divide or to sift. It means to look upon or consider, to think about, and then come to a conclusion after a cognitive judicial process. It means to weigh a word, a deed, a motive against a moral or legal standard and then determine if it satisfied that standard. And the outcome is justice, to right any wrong. Now, we want this. We want this. We want the end of injustice and evil on earth. Our culture is at last taking seriously sexual harassment and abuse uh, and finally, in business and film industry, and yes, the church, actors, executives, pastors are being held to account. Uh, in the movie Bombshell, Gretchen Carlson said, what do I want? I want this behavior to stop. Can you imagine a world in perpetual moral darkness? Can you imagine a world where evil is not held to account? Can you imagine a world if Hitler had won? No, we want Christ coming in judgment. We want him to come to judge the quick and the dead. In his book, Surprised by Hope, author Tom Wright said, God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and the trees to clap their hands. Then he says this, in a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are finally put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due, is that not the best news that there could ever be? Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of justice. And then Tom Wright pushes us a little bit because in that same book he says, listen, if you're not comfortable with the notion of a ju judgment day, it may be because you've never suffered. Or it may be because you've never been a victim. It may be because your view of God is that of a, a toothless, distant deity. Or it may be because you're an oppressor. See, He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And I want you to think about this. That Christ will come to evaluate our lives means that he respects us enough to review our lives. In our university community, theses and dissertations are being written, and the, the most thoughtful educators will count your papers worthy of reasoned, critical evaluation. 
Well, how much more the God of creation? You and I are made in the image of God. And the day of Christ's coming in judgment is a way of respecting our lives. What we do matters. The choices and the decisions that we make in this life, they matter. Christ's coming is the comfort of knowing that someone is paying attention to my life. Now, of course, the moment I say that, my comfort turns to terror. Because someone is paying attention. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. I'm thinking about the accused who stood before the judge and the accused was trembling in fear and the judge said to the accused you need not fear before this court I will ensure that you get justice and the accused said that's what I'm afraid of one author wrote if you knew the full condition of my heart my fantasies my grievances my anxieties And my darkest solitary thoughts, you would declare me a danger to myself and others. I cannot be entrusted with power by myself, certainly not with celebrity. And neither can you. Why? Hebrews 4, 13. No creature is hidden from his side. The word of God judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So while I'm comforted that one day Christ will come to sift all evil from this world, I'm wondering what my status is going to be when he's done sifting. I mean, if God eliminated all evil at midnight tonight, where would you be at 12.05 a.m.? And someone may be asking, well, what if a person has never heard about Jesus? Well, uh, let's talk about that. And I'll tell you how the scriptures answer that. You're not evaluated on what you don't know. You're evaluated based on what you know. Never heard about Jesus? Never given a copy of the Bible? Okay. But you do have a conscience, though. Now, have you perfectly followed the dictates of your own conscience? There. Paul talks about this in Romans He says in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim. That the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. So it doesn't take the Bible to tell me I'm guilty before God. My own conscience condemns me. My my own conscience says, Randy, you can't even keep your own standards, let alone God's. Now, this is what we call bad news. But unless we accept the bad news... We can never be helped by the good news. If you don't think you're sick, you'll never ask for help. Why do we get defensive when confronted? 
Why do any of us activate our inner lawyer? Why do we try to turn the tables and remind the other person that we're not the only sinner in the room? Why do we argue about facts or dispute the other person's interpretation? Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, God understands it. And here's the deal. When we are at the end of ourselves, when we're desperate for God, desperate for help, desperate for change, that's when change happens and God initiates that. He's the initiator. And here's what I mean by that. It's a beautiful account in Exodus chapter 17 where after God had delivered Israel from Egyptian slavery and parted the Red Sea and fed them bread from heaven, manna. In Exodus chapter 17, Israel is thirsty. They're in the desert. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They're quarreling. They're angry. They're bitter. They accuse Moses. They're, they want to kill him. It's not, I mean, they, they've got more than just low blood sugar. They are out for blood. And Moses is like, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord says, I want you to assemble the people. And we're going to have a trial. You gather the elders and you meet me at the rock of Oreb. And I want you to bring your staff. And I will see you there at that rock. It, it, it's a courtroom setting that Moses gives us in Exodus 17. Bring your rod, Moses. Rod, that's the symbol of authority and judgment. And Exodus chapter 17, verse 6 says this, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Now this is an important verse, because it's the only time in the Bible where it says that the Lord stood before the people. Uh, all other times, uh, Scripture says that People stand before the Lord. But here, God takes the place of the accused. And Moses is ordered to strike the rock with the judicial rod of authority. Well, God is there at the rock. So, you see what's going on? Moses is smiting God for the sins of the people. And when Moses strikes the rock. Streams of waters of mercy flow. And God's people are filled with refreshing water. And centuries later, at a rock called Golgotha, the rod, which was the cross, judged the Son of God innocent son of God. Jesus was sifted at the cross for me. God did the judgment on you when he did the judgment for your sins on Jesus. And that death for your sin was given to you. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 18, 
For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so now, don't you see what's going on here? In Christ, we live between two judgments. The first judgment took place at the cross. At the second judgment, believers won't be condemned. We will be raised John 5, 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We will live. John 5, 22 says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we will live, we will be raised, but not everyone. Only those who have honored the Son. And this is the life to choose to honor the Son. It's this present life here and now. I'm thinking of that classic Russian novel, uh, Eugene Onyagin. Eugene Onyagin, a, a jaded aristocrat, he meets an innocent young girl in the countryside. The girl's name was Tatanya. Tatanya writes him a letter offering him her love, but Onyagin does not reply. And when they meet again, he turns her down. The letter was touching, he tells her, but he says that he would soon grow bored of marriage to her. Well, years later, Onyagin enters the St. Petersburg party and he sees this stunningly beautiful woman. It's Titania, but now she's married and Onyagin falls in love with her and he tries desperately to win her back, but Titania refuses you see, once the door was opened, she offered him her love, but now it is closed. And for many of us, it's easy to reject Jesus now, like Titania's letter to Onyagin, his offer is touching, but we think we'll be happier without such a commitment. We worry he's going to cramp our style, so we move on with life, and we leave him in the spiritual countryside. But one day, the Bible warns, we will see Jesus in all of his glory. And our eyes will painfully open to his majesty. And we will bitterly regret that decision. But it will be no more unfair than Titania's rejection of Onyagin. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven, but who, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. What will you do today with Jesus of Nazareth? What will you do today? Today is the day of salvation. Choose Jesus. Choose Jesus because knowing that he is our Redeemer and rescuer, and savior, and judge. My goodness, it liberates us. The, the coming of Christ comforts us. The coming of Christ terrifies us so that we reach out to him for mercy, and we receive grace through faith. And then the coming of Christ liberates us because he has comforted us. We know the terror of our sick heart. We come to him and, and he frees us. 
frees us of the past, frees us of our guilt, so that we can gather as a congregation. No, we are not gathered on campus, but we are gathered online. We're, uh, we are gathered in the Holy Spirit, in His Word. It's because of who we believe Jesus is, His preeminence, His supremacy, His splendor. We honor Him and we want the world to honor Him. Where you are when you honor Him then will depend on whether you honored Him in the here and now. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to earn your salvation or your good works merit your salvation. No, no, no. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus said that a tree is known by its fruit. The fruit doesn't make a tree live. The fruit is evidence of life in the tree. So, so every deed that you did for Jesus, every fruit that uh, emerged from your life, Jesus will acknowledge and you will be honored before the entire world because of your faith commitment to him. That means every anonymous gift, every discreet act of love, every prayer you prayed in private, every kind of action, all of it, on the day of Christ, he will give an opinion of his people. And here it is, well done, good and faithful servant. In the most disruptive season, in uh, America since World War II, you reached out quietly. You gave generously. You served uh, faithfully. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.25, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. I'm thinking about uh, Eusebius, who was a bishop in the early church. He was actually a, uh, the first church historian and he wrote about an epidemic in the Roman Empire that just ravaged the population. But in his history, he noted the compassion of the Christians for the sick and marginalized. And here's this beautiful quote about the Christians. He said, their deeds were on everyone's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. It's because... It's because they knew how the story ends. And we know how the story ends. Our story ends in glory. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we too will appear with him in glory. And on that day, he'll be more than our Savior. He'll be more than our Redeemer, more than the Messiah. He'll be more than the Judge. Oh, he'll be all of those. But I'll tell you who else he'll be. He'll be the groom. We are the bride. William Dyke became blind when he was 10. And when he was in his early 20s and attending graduate school in England, he met the daughter of a British admiral and they fell in love. They decided to marry. But before he agreed to give his daughter's hand in marriage, the admiral insisted that William submit to what at the time was a very risky surgery to restore his sight. And William agreed with the following condition. He did not want the gauze removed from his eyes until the moment his bride was there at the altar. 
He wanted her face to be the first face he beheld on their wedding day. And so the surgery took place and the wedding day was set. And William's father led his son to the front of the church and the bride's father led her down the aisle. And as she came, William's father stood behind his son and unwound the gauze from his eyes. And the gauze was pulled away. And nobody knew if the surgery was going to be successful. And there he stood speechless. And everybody waited breathless. And then the groom said to his bride. At last. One day that's going to happen to us. Only the roles will be reversed. See, the Apostle Paul says, now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know him in part. Then I will know him fully, even as I am fully known. One day, the bride of Christ, that's us, the church, near blind now, will stand before her bridegroom at the wedding feast. And the veil will be removed. The scales will fall away. And we will see him face to face. And we will know him even as we are fully known. And he will be more than we have ever imagined. As we look into the eyes of love, Jesus, and we say, at last.